0: There is a quality in a person that everyone seems to admire. There's a quality that people seem to respect and that people search for. Whether you are looking for this quality in a friend, a potential spouse looking for it in an employee or a potential employer, or you desire it to be found in your children or grandchildren, or you desire it to be found in yourself. and That quality is to be real quality is to be real and you would think that the quality of being real should be easy to obtain and should be in everybody's life because on a surface level how hard can it be to be real you are who you are and why would you ever want to present yourself to others in a way that does not reflect that but obviously that is on a surface level I'm sure we can all think of reasons why we may not want to reveal who we truly are to other people. Maybe we feel embarrassed about the things that we like. Or maybe we feel embarrassed about certain things that we do. Maybe it's mannerisms and sayings that we may have adopted from things along the way in our life. uh, And some people might view them as a little bit weird. So we don't really want to be too real with people. But it's interesting that there seems to be almost a double standard of being real. People, in theory, want you to be real. They love to see when someone gets passionate about something that is important to them. Uh, they they uh, like to see how they really get into whatever they're into. And oftentimes they'll refer to that person as someone who wears their emotions on their sleeve. You you know how they feel about something because they're passionate about it. People love it when you open up about your family and talk about the family dynamic that you may have in your life, and people usually refer to that as being family-oriented. There's even a degree that people love it when someone is able to admit their mistakes and their shortcomings and their faults because that person is seen as humble. And the reason that it seems to be a double standard about being real is because people don't want others to be too real. They want them to be real, but not too real. They don't want someone to actually really reveal who they truly are. They want someone to open up about their passion unless that passion is not interesting, or that passion is not relevant, or maybe it's inappropriate. They want someone to be real about their family, unless their family situation is not a good situation, then don't want to particularly share that situation. They want you to be humble about your shortcomings as long as those shortcomings aren't too severe or for a person to become too self-deprecating. The reason that I believe people don't want others to be too real is because everyone deep down inside knows that human beings are flawed. From a secular perspective, they think that there are environmental reasons as to why people are flawed. People just aren't in the right position to be successful. People just haven't been given the right chance to do something about the flaws that they may have in their life. But from a biblical Christian perspective, we know that humans are corrupted by sin, down to our core. We've been corrupted by sin. So people want us to be real when we have it all together. They want us to share more about ourselves as long as it's all the good stuff. None of the bad stuff, just the good stuff. And the problem is that very rarely do we consistently have good stuff to share with others to allow us to be real enough on a consistent basis to be considered real. Now, they might not consider us as fake, if we don't have this, but they might not also consider us as real to where they look at you and say, oh yeah, that person is, is very real. So in an effort to be considered real and to be genuine, people oftentimes twist reality a little bit. They exaggerate parts of their life. Uh, they put on a good face. They share things that are good about their lives and things about, that are good about themselves when behind the scenes, those things sometimes just simply aren't true. This is what we call hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is like a house of cards. Everything is built and dependent on another. And if one aspect of our perfect real life gets discovered to be not as perfect or as real as we have been portraying, then the whole thing collapses. And people desperately try to maintain this perfect real persona. Like they have everything together and that they are far better and far better off than what they truly are. And this is something that has been greatly exaggerated and become even more prevalent in our society today with the influence of social, me- social media. There is almost extra pressure to not only share with others in person and then be able to go home and maybe manage the hypocrisy that we have been sharing. But now there is this pressure to be sharing in more detail our lives and how perfect they seem to be. And it's extremely dangerous because everyone begins to measure what they have and how they are based off of someone's post on social media. And that post could potentially be a complete lie. None of it is the truth. But yet we see that and we think, oh, that's what it looks like to have it all together. That's what it looks like to be real. I need to have that. How can I twist what I am and what I have to match that? It used to be that this comparison would take place around the water cooler as coworkers would share what they did over the weekend. But now it is a constant barrage of the reminder that someone else has set a standard of what is good and what is expected, but you don't measure up. So you feel that you also need to exaggerate to try to keep up. And meanwhile, in your heart, and in your head, there's this little voice, this little voice in the back of your head that's screaming at you, saying, you're a hypocrite. That's not the actual truth. You didn't actually do that. You don't actually believe that. That's not who you truly are. You're going to be found out. They're going to see through it all. What happens when they ask you about that thing that you posted about or told to, said about? You're fake. You know it and it's only one slip-up until everyone else knows it too. And yeah, we find ourselves faking it all the time because of how big of a part faking it is in the culture of fallen humanity. We find ourselves faking stories that make us seem to be a hero than how the story actually played out. We fake and exaggerate our jobs to make them seem more important than they truly are. We fake our finances by finagling them to squeeze into a mortgage that is too steep in order to be in a more prestigious house. And we just simply can't afford that. Or we do so with vehicles, to the point where we cripple ourselves with car payments because we want the status of the newest model year. We want the status of a brand that is better than we can truly afford. We can fake our way into friendships, With a group of people that we have no business being around, and this leads us to over extending ourselves all in an effort to keep up. Maybe for the Christian, it's faking a deeper theological knowledge than what we truly possess. Trying to say all the right things at every at the right time. Or maybe it's a deeper commitment to ministry than we actually have a desire for. Could be faking your marriage and presenting it as more mature and more put together than what it actually is. Or it could be that we fake our relationship with some sin and we are unwilling to confess to others our struggle because they also, too, have admitted to struggle and we want to be better than them. Or maybe we are being fake to ourselves by telling ourselves that we're more righteous than we truly are. And I'm confronting you all with a question that I was confronted with as I prepared this message. And that is, is there some place or some way in my life where I'm fake? Is there some place or some way in my life where I'm fake? And I want you to wrestle with that question. Wrestle with if there is some place where, to yourself or to others, you're pretending to be something that you're not. And I believe that there is, in all of us, this temptation to be fake. Because there's always a temptation to be more wise, to be more righteous, to be more strong than what we truly are. And as we wrestle with these questions, and as we search our lives, I'm sure that we can all identify some area in which this may be true. Because I know I found many areas in my life where this was true. And it leaves us wondering... What do we do about this? What do we do about this? And there's one word that can change it all for us. And that is the word grace. Grace can change it all. So we're going to look at how grace can free us from the hypocritical fake trap that we find ourselves in far too often. So if you have your Bibles this evening, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be looking this evening at verses 4 through 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. And as we go through this, we're going to look at three things that grace does to help drive out hypocrisy and a fake way of living. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The first way that grace can break us from this trap of hypocrisy and being fake is that grace brings to remembrance what we were. Grace brings to remembrance what we were. As we ponder how grace can free us from being hypocritical, we must realize that grace cannot help but bring us back to the root of why we needed grace in the first place. We needed grace because we were all dead in our sins. We were all dead, verse 5, even when we were dead in sins. Death is a direct result of sin. And all humanity is naturally found in this state because all humans are born into sin. Romans 5.12 tells us, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Paul is making it very clear that because of the sin of Adam, this brought death into the world. Adam's sin transferred down to all mankind. And since Adam's sin transferred to all mankind, then the death that came about by Adam's sin also transferred down to all mankind. This is obviously can't be talking about physical death because we're all alive here today. The fact that we are all here breathing, we are hopefully paying attention, um, is pointing to the fact that we are very much so alive. So what does it mean that we were all dead in sins? Biblically speaking, there are three types of death. There is physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. Physical death is when we are separated from our physical bodies here on earth. This is something that every person deals with every person is confronted with physical death they deal with it because it's separation from our earthly bodies the only exception to physical death is when Christ comes back and those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds and so shall we ever be with the Lord But if we're not in that group, we are all faced with the reality that someday we will physically die. We will be separated from our physical bodies. That's the first kind of death, physical death. The second kind of death is what is referred to as spiritual death. Spiritual death, simply put, is separation from God. This is the kind of death that because of Adam's sin and the transfer of Adam's sin causes us all to be dead. Spiritually separated from God. And sin causes us to be spiritually separated from God because of God's holiness. Pastor Coupe in Sunday mornings has started a study on God's holiness. And it is really a never-ending aspect of God. You can never truly understand the depth of his holiness. But one basic way that I've heard it described is that God's holiness is the fact that God must be totally separated from sin and evil. God cannot have fellowship with sin. That's an aspect of his holiness. So because of sin being passed down from Adam and the sin that we commit on our own, this is more than enough grounds for us to be spiritually dead, spiritually separated from God. And this is where grace steps in. Because there was nothing that we can do to change this state of being spiritually dead. Because what can a dead person do besides nothing? If a person is dead... There's nothing they can do besides be dead. Christ came to earth to die for us, exchanging his life for ours, so that through faith in him, we may be saved. And this salvation gives to us the righteous standing before a holy God that allows us to have fellowship with him. Christ makes us spiritually alive. Adam's sin made all spiritually dead, but Christ's sacrifice can make all spiritually alive. And the final form of death just to complete the three types of death that were mentioned is eternal death. This is the state of those who are not spiritually alive in Christ at the point of their physical death. The Bible tells us that it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. Man only has his opportunity here on earth to accept the free gift of salvation in order to be saved from spiritual death. And if this does not happen, The only fate of that man is eternal separation from God and eternal death. But how does this knowledge of us being dead in our trespasses and sin help us in overcoming being fake? How does all this tie together? The whole issue with being hypocritical or fake is that we are trying to be something that we're not. Whether we are trying to exaggerate maybe a partial truth in our life or we're just making something up, we're trying to push something that we truly aren't. And as we recognize that our natural position in life is that of being dead, because we're all dead in our sin until the moment of salvation when Christ makes us alive, this changes the way that we now view ourselves in light of salvation. Because how useful is something that is dead? Not very useful. In fact, you can make the argument that things that are dead are more of a hindrance than even just being neutral. So when we are contemplating ourselves in our lives and we are tempted with trying to fake something in order to be viewed by others or even viewed by ourselves as something that we are not, we need to remember that before salvation, we were all dead and useless to the work of God. We don't need to fake anything because anything is better than being spiritually dead. The second way that grace drives out hypocrisy, is grace brings to remembrance what we have been made. Grace brings to remembrance what we have been made. And we touched on this in the previous point, but the grace of God that brought to us salvation made us a new creation in Christ Jesus. And part of being this new creation is being made alive. We have covered how we were in our natural state dead because of sin, And we talked about how it was Christ's sacrifice of his life on the cross that overcomes this death. But let's take a deeper look into how this happens and why this is so important. Being dead, we had no ability to help ourselves. The only way that we were going to have our state of death be changed was by the work of another. It couldn't come from us. No matter how much we tried, no matter what we did, We couldn't do anything about it. It had to be someone else's work that was going to change our state from being spiritually dead. And with death being separated from God by sin, then we needed something or someone to overcome sin in order to have fellowship with God. In the Old Testament, they would offer animal sacrifices in order to temporarily atone for sin. But the issue was that this was not a permanent solution because It was a continuous system. Essentially, that sacrifice was only good until the next sin. And it didn't even touch our sin nature. But as sin entered the world and death by sin through the sin of Adam, almost immediately, God provided a way for the redemption of mankind. When God goes through and pronounces the punishment and the judgments of the sin of Adam and Eve and on the serpent, he tells the serpent that there would be one from the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. And in doing so, he would also stomp out death and sin. This one was Christ. Christ was the one from the very beginning that God had ordained to be the sacrifice in order order to overcome sin and death. But what makes this sacrifice different than the Old Testament sacrifices was that this sacrifice was a once-for-all sacrifice. There was no need to continuously sacrifice Christ. He's not still hanging on the cross. He is off the cross. He has been buried and he rose again, defeating sin and death. Because of the fact that Christ was God and took on flesh to be our sacrifice makes his death more than sufficient to not only blot out our sins, but also to destroy the grip of the old man, our sin nature. This could have only been accomplished through Christ because he exchanged for us our righteousness for his. So when we stand before a holy God who cannot tolerate sin, he no longer sees our righteousness, because that righteousness has been placed on Christ, nailed to the cross, and that debt has been paid. And when we accept Christ as our Savior, we are washed by His blood and His righteousness, so we now stand before God as righteous, having the blood and righteousness of Christ on our account. God no longer sees our righteousness, but rather his own righteousness, which is the only righteousness that God could accept being holy. The only way was through Christ. No other man, no other way, only Christ. So we have been changed from being spiritually dead in our trespasses and sin to being alive in Christ. But not only have we been made alive in Christ, But we've also been made to raise together and sit together in heavenly places in Christ. If we look back at the passage, start again in verse 4, But God, who was rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us, Through Christ Jesus. So now we have been made to be raised together and sit together in heavenly places with Christ. And what is amazing about this, both being made to raise and to sit together, is that the tenses of both raised and sit indicate that these are immediate and direct results of our salvation. So now we are not only no longer dead to sin. And made alive unto righteousness, but we are also sharing Christ's exaltation and share in His preeminence. And what we need to remember is that we have been raised together and sit together in heavenly places. This is talking about the spiritual supernatural realm where God reigns. It's also the sphere where Satan has been given temporary rule. And in this spiritual supernatural realm, this is where believers have been given spiritual blessings. This is where we find our inheritance in Christ. This is where our affections should be, not here on earth, but in heaven. This is where we enjoy fellowship with God. This is where all divine revelation comes from and where all praise goes. How these things drive out our hypocrisy and our being fake is that we as Christians have to realize the only reason that we are anything is because of the grace of God which made us alive in Christ and that has raised us up and has made us sit together in heavenly places. We don't need to compare and fake our way through because we have all that we need in Christ. There is nothing that he has not supplied us with that we truly need. There should not need to be anything more than make us alive, yet God continues to bless us. The fact that he has made us alive should be more than enough. But the fact that he continues to pour on the blessings is something that we need to take note of and praise him for. We don't need to fake and try to draw attention to ourselves because all attention should go to God. And all praise belongs to him for the things that he has done and the things that he has blessed us with. It's easy to get distracted and try to bring the praise onto ourselves for things that we have done, things that we have obtained, things that we may have possessed. But it all comes from God. It all comes from him. There is no room for us to take credit for any of it. All praise belongs to God for what he has blessed us with. And this brings us to the final way that grace drives out hypocrisy. Grace brings to remembrance who enabled it all. Grace brings to remembrance who enabled it all. we continue to ponder what we were before grace, and what we have been made because of grace, we would be remiss and really miss the whole point if we do not remember who enabled all of it. And ultimately, if we don't remember who enabled all of it, we'll continuously struggle with being fake. Really, the first two words of verse 4 tell you all you need to know. But God. But God. The only reason that we're able to be alive and have blessings and to have grace is because of God. God was not obligated by any means to provide this for us. Back in the Garden of Eden, God had no obligation to spare Adam and Eve. He could have just wiped them out and said, I'm starting fresh. They messed up, we're doing it over again. He had no obligation to promise a way for salvation. He could have said, it's going to play out. You disobeyed me, now you will reap the consequences of that. And he certainly had no obligation to make the way of salvation the sacrifice of his son. He had no obligation to do any of that. Yet he chose to do that. It wasn't that he was cornered and that was his only option. This is how he chose to For it to work. And there are two driving forces that Paul points our attention to that we should have endless praise and appreciation for. And we find those in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, the first of these driving forces is God's rich mercy. Mercy is basically God's withholding something that we deserve, we all deserve death. I believe we have made that clear because of sin, we deserve death. Adam and Eve deserve death, not only spiritual death, but also physical and eternal death through disobedience to God. Sin is that serious in God's sight that sin should cause us to suffer all three forms of death. But God's mercy in withholding what we deserve, He spares us. He not only provided a way that enables us to have salvation, but also gives us ample time and opportunity to respond to his call for salvation. When we really sit down and think about how long suffering God's mercy is, how many times that we have been defiant in the face of God, yet he continues to show us that mercy, not on any of our own merit, but by but because of his own free will really shows the vastness and the richness of God's mercy. I think richness is a great way to describe it, because when I think of richness, the first thing that usually comes in my head is some kind of dessert. I am a big fan of chocolate, chocolate anything, I'm a huge fan of. My wife is not, so I do not get as much chocolate as I would like, which is probably a good thing for me in the long run. It's probably a really good thing for me in the long run. But we've probably all had that dessert in our life that we take one bite and we step back and say to ourselves, man, that is rich. And with richness, it's the idea that this dessert is so sweet and so savory that we want more until the point we can no longer handle it because it is overwhelming. God's mercy is so sweet and so good that it is overwhelming to the point where we can no longer comprehend having more, yet there always is more. The depths of his mercy is unsearchable because the very nature of our God is unsearchable. If any of us were in the place of God and extending mercy, we would have a lot shorter of a leash than what God has as far as showing mercy. It's unsearchable. His very nature is unsearchable. But it was not only God's rich mercy that saved us, but it was also his great love. Because mercy is withholding something that we deserved. But just withholding it from what we deserve doesn't change the fact that we were dead in sin. This is where his great love comes in, in which he loved us. It can only be described as the greatest act of love for the almighty, perfect God to send his son to die for sinful, defiant, spiteful humankind. There was nothing on our part that should have attracted God's love in any way, let alone to the point of sending his son to be a sacrifice for us. This would be like us sending our only child to go and pay the penalty of death for our worst enemy that has been nothing but wicked and evil to us. And to be completely honest, this kind of love cannot be truly comprehended. But just because it cannot be comprehended does not mean it's not real, and it does not mean that we cannot praise God and be eternally grateful for this love. Because it was this love that enabled our salvation, that enabled us to be spiritually alive, that enabled us to have blessings. But it was not only God that enabled this, but it was also Christ who enabled it. This might be a difficult concept for us to comprehend because of the knowledge of the fact that God and Christ are one as the, as the Trinity teaches us. But Christ had to cooperate with this mercy and the love of God. Because it was Christ who, being God, stepped out of eternity to take on human flesh. To endure the humiliation of, again, being God, but suppressing that and humbling himself to for the form of a man. Not only taking on the form of a man, but living a perfect sinless life, even though he was tempted in all points as we were. And all of this was done for the purpose to die. For us. And the Bible tells us that he did this willingly. Did it Willingly. He loved us so much that he willingly endured the cross, which by many is deemed the most cruel form of death, all to redeem us. The final aspect that we need to remember is that this is nothing that we have done. There is not a single aspect of salvation, of God's mercy, of God's love, that we deserved, that we have earned, that we had the right to, We forfeited all of that with sin. And understanding this needs to change the way that we view God and change the way that we view ourselves. God did not have to, but he did. We did not deserve, yet we received. Why should we ever feel the need to fake something in order to be viewed as better than we are? when we know that all that we are is purely by the grace of God. Grace overcomes our hypocrisy because we understand that we are sinners. And outside of salvation, we have no merit to be real. It is grace that gives us a new identity in Christ, in which we cannot fake if we are truly his children. We don't need to fake earthly things because we have been made to pursue spiritual things. Grace allows us to recognize that we are sinners, and it is only by God's love and God's mercy that we can be considered righteous. So there's no need to cling to fake righteousness, especially before others who have been saved by the same grace. So I pose the question that we started with Is there some place or some way in your life where you are fake? Is there some place or some way in my life where I am fake? Pose another question How does grace drive that out? I challenge you to, to sit down and think how does grace drive out the way that I may be fake in my life? It's different for everyone. But if we're truly honest with ourselves, we may find areas where this is true. And if we do find areas which this is true, then grace can drive that out. But we have to examine that. We have to look at that and we have to bring it alongside each other and figure out how does grace drive out this way that I'm fake? Will you recognize the grace that drives out being fake? Let's pray. Father, I just praise you for your love. Lord, for your mercy with, without these things, we are truly nothing. It was purely by your will, by your love, and by your mercy in which Christ came to die for us, or that we may have eternal life through him, that we could be made spiritually alive, have been given Christ's righteousness to be able to stand before you as righteous and holy in your sight because of, of Christ's Righteousness and holiness. Lord, and as we live our lives and as we are are tempted with times of of viewing ourselves and viewing things around us and, and feeling the need to to fake something in order to be viewed by others in a way that we are not truly, I pray that you'll help us to recognize the grace that has been given to us. That we recognize, Lord, what we were before that grace came into our life through salvation or that we remember what we have been made because of grace or and ultimately remember who enabled all of it as we stand before you and and see that you are the almighty God who loves us and who, who sent his son to die for us and I pray that you'll help us to see these things to behold ourselves as James says as a mirror and that we will walk away from your word changed because of how it transforms our lives. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.